Well, let me welcome again any visitors that we have with us this morning. We are glad that you have chosen to worship with us and uh, to join with us together in celebrating the grace and love of Christ our Savior. Uh, again, I'm Pastor Thabiti, one of the pastors here with the Anacostia River Church family. And on behalf of the entire church family, I want to welcome you this morning and thank you for coming. Now, we don't like to embarrass our visitors, but we do like to sort of know them. So if you're here this morning and you're visiting for the first time, uh, can I invite you just to stand again so that we can welcome you with a hand clap and give God praise for you? Amen. <laughs> Remain standing for a moment. Remain standing for a moment. So I understand that this brother is all the way from England. Is that right? And uh, you actually know someone who knows Jeremy McClain. That's right. So you guys be sure to connect. See, brother, people keep their eye on you all over the world, man. Uh, so definitely. And um, yeah, we've got visitors from CHBC. We're glad, brother, to worship with you this morning. Anybody come not all the way from England, but from across the street? Anybody nearby? Excellent. All right. Where are you from, brother? Excellent. Excellent. You're keeping good company, brother. Thank you for worshiping with us. Now, you're standing. You don't have to, but if you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, please do so. So I know there's a family relocated with the military just a couple weeks ago. Yeah? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Thank you for your service to the country, brother. Amen. And your wonderful family. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Praise God. <laughs> Not for long, I hope, but, you know, praise God. Amen. Thank you guys for joining and worshiping with us this morning. Yeah. Ah, amen. So John O and our brothers and sisters down at Cornerstone in Atlanta. Hey, you did their logo. Excellent. All right. You, you are, as you speak, putting yourself to work here at ARC. All right. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. Thank you, sister, for joining us. Excellent. 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 Welcome, brother. Good to see you again, man. Amen. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for joining with us this morning. Now, uh, among the visitors, did you all get a welcome card? Were you able to sort of fill out a welcome card for us? If not, you raise your hand. Uh, we would love, okay, you, you're pointing out a sister. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I missed you. I'm so sorry. You were trying to be missed. Uh, but that, that lovely sister named Patrice wouldn't let you be missed. Uh, amen. Tell me your name, sis. Excellent. So glad you were with us. Oh, wonderful. Excellent, man. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. So if you need a sermon card, please, or excuse me, a welcome card, please raise your hand, and one of the ushers will bring that. We'd love to get to know you uh, by name. And I want to invite you also to stick around after the service uh, for our potluck fellowship. So you know how that works, right? You open a pot, see what luck you have. Um, so, uh, so stick around as we fellowship uh, after service. We're glad to get to know you by, by not only name in this way, but, but heart to heart uh, as we fellowship. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you have landed near the end of a, a long series for us as a church. We've been going through our statement of faith, which is the Second London Baptist Confession, written in 1689. Um, we have chosen as a new church plant to take a slow walk through our statement of faith just so that we might get grounded in what we believe. In fact, that's what we've called the series, uh, We Believe. 
Uh, and we have come this morning to chapter 27, I think it is, of the Statement of Faith. It's on baptism. Uh, we're a Baptist church, and so it's proper that we should give some attention to baptism and um, give some attention, more importantly, to God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of the brothers and sisters will, will bring your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home, and you would like to have a Bible all your own, please take this Bible and uh, consider it a gift from us to you. Uh, we would like nothing more than to know that God's Word is in every home of our community. And so do please take a copy. Um, don't feel like you're stealing anything. It's a gift. Um, and if you were stealing it, that'd be the best thing in the world to steal is God's Word. Uh, so do take a copy by all means. <laughs> 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. Now we come to thinking about baptism and um, teaching this as a church and, and sort of getting our doctrinal uh, commitments down as a church on this particular issue. There are a number of places you could go in the scripture. Uh, we heard uh, our sister read very beautifully from Matthew chapter 3. We could look at the Lord's baptism there. We can go to a place like Ephesians where Paul refers to the fact that we've all been baptized in one baptism. That's certainly relevant. Or we can look at the Great Commission, Jesus' last words on earth before he ascends into heaven in Matthew 28, where baptism is commanded uh, as to the church uh, for the rest of the church's mission and presence in the world. And all those will be wonderful texts. I think, and you can tell me after the sermon, I think Colossians 2 is perhaps the most subtle but the most beautiful of baptism texts. Because in Colossians 2 is where we see baptism as a symbol enveloping the riches of Christ and what he's done for us. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, Paul's in the middle of an argument in this letter and instruction to the Colossians where he wants to sort of describe to them their life in Christ and how it is they are called now to live that life in Christ. And in the text that we're going to look at, verses 8 to 15, uh, Paul has a particular pastoral concern that somehow, someway, their eyes might be taken off of what they have in Christ and who they are in Christ, and so they may be taken captive by teaching that's less glorious, less effective, than that teaching which we have in Christ. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang this sermon on sort of one main point. If you get one thing from this sermon, let it be this exhortation. Resist captivity because of Christ until we win. That we are to resist various forms of spiritual captivity because of Jesus and what he has done for us, and continue that resistance until we win the prize that Christ has purchased. And our, our notes this morning, our outline, is just going to take that one sentence and break it into three parts. So the first thing we want to see is the command to resist captivity. We see that in verse 8. Resist captivity. Then we want to consider because of Christ who he is and what he's done for us. And we'll see that in verses 9 to 12. And it's in that section that we'll consider baptism. And then in verses 13 to 15, we want to consider until we win, the victory that Christ has won that is ours in him. 
resist captivity because of Christ until we win that final victory. Hear now God's word. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The first thing we want to see is this exhortation to resist captivity. You see it there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The first thing we ought to be alert to is that the Christian life requires various forms of resistance. The Christian life is warfare, and there are enemies to our lives that, that must be resisted. And some of the enemies are obvious, but some of them are subtle. And that's what Paul wants to talk about here, the subtle enemies to the Christian life. And this is a rather urgent matter. You see how Paul starts verse 8? He says, see to it. This, this is something that implies both attention and intention, that we are aware of it and we are purposeful in our resistance to it. This is something to, to focus the mind on with, with, real, with real intention. But what are we to see to? You see it there? That no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We allow no one to do this, beloved. Not preachers, not pastors, not family members, not well-meaning friends, not, not those from other faiths and traditions. This is something to be so, so zealously protected that nobody has the right to take it from us, to make us captive. Beloved, how many of us know there's still slave traders in the world? whether we're talking about the literal, physical slave traders who trade young girls in sex trafficking, or whether we're talking about those traders who enslave young boys in fishing villages and make them work in various kinds of mines. But for the Christian, there's also another possible captor, another kind of captivity. It's the captivity, as Paul says here, of philosophy and vain deceit or empty deceit that usually comes through false teachers posing themselves as Christians. Sometimes comes from real Christians who don't quite understand what we have in Christ. This captivity, philosophy, the, the love of wisdom. 
Here, Paul is concerned about the deceitful form of this, the, the kind that comes with, with cloak and dagger, meaning to be hidden so as to take captive unawares, to take captive without our notice, to sneak up on us and to, to pounce out on us and to grab us and to chain us and lead us off. All in the name of Christian teaching. And Paul tells us where it comes from. Did you see that there? He says, it is according to human tradition according to the elemental, elemental principles of the world. Human tradition. The kinds of things that, that mankind sort of develops in the way of ritual that, that seems good, that seems helpful. But maybe you remember that passage in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 13, I believe it is, where Jesus is in conversation with scribes and Pharisees, and they ask Jesus about various kinds of traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees have, have developed in order, notice, in order to obey and to keep the commands of God. And do you remember what Jesus says to them? <laughs> Your traditions have made the word of God of no effect. We can build up all kinds of traditions and all kinds of practices that seem to us to be in keeping with God's command, to be an application of God's command, and yet find that what we've done to ourselves is enslave ourselves. And worse, we've made the word of God ineffective in that area of our lives. Paul also refers to these as the elemental principles of the world, or you may have a translation that says the, the elemental spirits of the world. That little phrase there has in mind a, a child's grammar book. How many of you learned to, to write, maybe cursive, or just learned your letters with a little book where you trace the letters, you know, and you learn to sort of connect the dot and trace the letters, and you try to stay within the lines as you learn to write? That's the very idea that this phrase has in mind, a sort of child's copybook of, of learning how to write. And Paul says there, there are elemental principles of the world. There are, there are ways in the world that, that are sort of taught to people, that teach them to trace themselves, notice at the end of the verse, not according to Christ, but to trace themselves according to the principles of the world. We learn the handwriting of the world, and so learn the thinking of the world and so find ourselves captive to the world. And Paul says, don't be taken captive. That phrase, elemental spirits of the world or principles of the world, Paul uses that again in verse 20. You look down in verse 20, and here he begins to make clear what it is he's driving at in verse 8. He says, if with Christ you died, notice, to the elemental spirits of the world, the ABCs of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. And this is what he says. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is striking. Paul is writing to Christians, warning them about not being taken captive, and the particular thing he's concerned of is this way of thinking that maybe begins with a good goal. It begins with what appears to be wise and, and perhaps has some interest in curving the sin nature 
But it ends with the multiplication of self-made religion, the multiplication not of the commands of God, the word of God, but the commands and the practices of men. And this church seeking to, to guard itself against the flesh ends up enslaved to the world. How does that happen? Well, I think this enslavement is a little bit like being boxed in. Many of you have seen the Jurassic Park movies. My favorite dinosaur is the Velociraptor. It's the wise little fellows, but they're fierce, aren't they? And, and, and one kind of makes himself seen, doesn't he? And you go, oh, there's an angel, there's an enemy right there, but you don't see the other couple lurking in the bush. And that one gets you going in a certain direction, and then there are two, and you, you turn, and you go the other direction. And then there are three and four, and they just sort of run you in this route until they box you in, <coughs> and then they pounce. And so it is with us if we're not careful that we can box ourselves in. We can see something that's a real problem, just hypothetically, um, the ways in which sometimes people rebel against the role of men and women as they're described in the Bible. And we can say, okay, we need to put a fence up. Let's put a fence up over here because we don't want to cross that line. And then you keep thinking about it. Well, how do we apply this? How do we work this out? Well, that question often gets answered with another wall. Okay, let's put a wall up over here. We won't do this either. And then you keep working it out, and you keep working it out. You come over here, and you add a third wall. And the next thing you know, you've added a fourth wall, and you boxed yourself in. Then you move the walls until you can't move. It all started with what appeared to be wise. But it was the multiplication of things that were not in the scripture. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let us learn not to go beyond what is written. Why? Well, that's how we resist captivity. That's how we resist enslavement, by bringing ourselves under the word of God and letting that be our God, letting that be our captive, the very word itself. And what's Paul concerned with? There's a contrast here right at the end of the verse. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive with this vain philosophy and, and all of that good stuff. But he goes on to say that, that it's not according to Christ. He doesn't spend much time on it, but he's saying, in other words, we have learned Christ, as we considered several weeks ago. And what do we learn? Well, we learn in Galatians 5, verse 1, this wonderful sentence, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not let anyone take you captive again with a yoke of bondage. This is Paul's declaration to Christians everywhere. Christ has come, and Christ has set you free. Enjoy your freedom. Embrace it. Don't run from it. Let no one take it from you. Even those who come to you who are fellow believers, brothers and sisters, who are articulating a whole lot of applications that are beyond the word of God, that too can be well-meaning but enslaving. And certainly don't let those come to you who are surely false teachers, who preach another Jesus, who preach another gospel, who preach false things contrary to the scripture. Be careful, see to it. No one take you captive. Resist captivity. That's how he starts this letter. We ought, as we discussed in our new members class this morning, what, what, we, what, we, what we desperately want for the saints of ARC, for the family of ARC, is that you have that Berean attitude from Acts 17. You remember the Bereans? Those believers in, the, in a city that Paul went to, the apostle? 
And as he was going through the city, he was preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. We're told this wonderful thing about them, that they searched the scriptures to see whether or not what Paul said was so. Believe me, beloved, if the Apostle Paul can be checked up on by the Bereans, Pastor T, Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Matt better be checked up on with your Bibles. We want nothing more than this church to have that Berean spirit, to love the scriptures and love the truth, to love those who teach it, but to make sure that it is so. You're not taken captive by what I think, but by the word of God itself. That will be your freedom. Resist captivity. Keep this philosophy of Christ, our freedom in Christ, and resist, number two, because of what Christ has done for us. Notice there, verse 9 begins with the little word for. That's an important word. When you see that in Scripture, then you know that what's about to come is the reason for what's just been said. Another way you could translate that is because or, or here's why. Uh, and so Paul now is about to tell us why he exhorts the Colossians to, to resist this captivity and see that no one takes them captive. And we're going to see four reasons here for this resistance. And the, resi- the reasons are like, are like footsteps. We're walking the path of Christ's work for us. We're tracing the places he's gone in our salvation. Notice the first footprint. It's a big one. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Footprint number one. God is fully in Christ. I mean, let verse 9 soak in for a moment. That in the man Jesus of Nazareth, in Mary's son, in the carpenter who walked the streets of Jerusalem and the fields of Judea, dwelling in him is the fullness of God. Now, this is one of those verses that really just divides the world, right? There, there's no way to look at this verse and shade it and come up with multiple meanings. He's saying Jesus is God, that in Jesus of Nazareth dwells the fullness of deity. And, and, and beloved, you know, not only is Jesus God, but notice that this was believed from the beginning. This is not something made up in Nicaea. This is not something fabricated in the Middle Ages. This is not something concocted by men who are carrying on their deception. No, this is the truth. And to err from this, as 1 John tells us, that's the deception. That Jesus is God. That in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So now here we have an affirmation of the incarnation too, don't we? He's no phantom. He's no mist. He's no idea. Liberal theologians like to talk about the Jesus idea. Here, Paul is talking about the Jesus embodied. He has come fully God and fully man. Fully. What a wonderful adjective. Not partly God and partly man, some kind of demigod. This is the one true God who tabernacled among us and dwelled among us and walked among us. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And there's no way to be Christian and not believe that Jesus is God. 
This is why we, we do not understand our Jehovah's Witnesses neighbors to be Christians. However much Jesus they talk about, they're not talking about this Jesus of the Bible. However zealous they are to go out every Saturday or whatever and knock on your door and give you watchtower tracks, you give the track back to them because they're not talking about this Jesus. That's a vain philosophy. That's, a, that's an empty deceit that is ensnaring men and destroying souls. This is why Paul could say in Galatia, man, if anybody preaches to you another Christ, let them be anathema. Let them be cut off. Let them be cursed. Because there's only one Jesus that saves. The one who is fully God and fully man who dwelled among us. Paul says resist captivity because of who this Jesus is. Then he tells us, he gives us a second footprint, number two. Not only that God is fully in Christ, but Christ, who is God, is fully in us. Notice there in verse 10. And you have been filled in him. <laughs> verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. What in the world does that mean? Well, we know what you means. It means Christians. We know what it is to fill something. It is to pour something else into it. Notice the, the tense of that verb. You have been filled. Past tense. Perfect tense. This is a completed action. What, what have we been filled with? You have been filled in him. We have been filled with him. Paul puts it another way in another letter. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. He asked this rhetorical question. In one of those passages, he asked it of the individual Christian. In the other, he asked it of the church as a whole. He asked this question. Do you not know that you have become temples of God in whom he lives by his spirit? That's, that's the fullness of him in us. Christian, do you not know you are filled with God himself through his spirit. That Christ lives in you by his spirit. It's not just that he was incarnated 2,000 years ago and, and God dwelled among men in the man Christ Jesus, but this same God who dwelled in Christ, now in Christ, dwells in us. He's come closer to us than 2,000 years ago. He's taking resonance in us. What a remarkable thing. What an indescribable thing. That God should live in us. It's a bizarre thing to say to most of the world. But Christian, have you not experienced this? Have you not had those moments where your, your heart has been so moved with the presence of another? Where, where your, your mind has been so affected by the, by the knowledge that you are not alone, that, that Christ is with you, that the promise that he will never leave you and forsake you, that that promise you have experienced, you have, you have felt it, you have known it, 
that Christ is real, that his spirit testifies with your spirit, that you are sons and daughters of God. There's this quickening, this awakening, this, this joy, this, this trembling and delight in your soul that you are not alone. That Christ is in you. That Christ is with you. And that you are alive because of it. In him, notice the verse says, this is where we find this filling in Christ, in our union with Christ. This is what's being taught here, that we have, through faith in God now, been united to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, verses 13 to 16, that, that Christ himself has taken us and made us one with God in his own body, that, that he has made peace with us and God. And that we have been united to him and, and brought to God through him. We have had our lives, Paul could say in another place, hid in Christ. And it's not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. The life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Beloved, these are, just, these are not simply poetic statements. These are not simply clever things to say to make Christians feel good. These are descriptions of vital spiritual truths that we need to remember and embrace and delight in for Christ lives in us if we are Christ. And all that we have before God and all that we are before God, we have and we are because we are united to Christ who is God. Our union with him is an unending union, an unbreakable union, a vital, life-giving union, a mind-changing, soul-freeing union. And it's ours to live in. It's ours to delight in. It's ours to know and experience. It's the second footprint God gives us to Christ. Here's the third one. Christ has circumcised us. You see it there in verse 11? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now what is circumcision? Now Paul reaches back into the Old Testament and he brings forth an old symbol. When God decided to make Israel his people and to give Israel his law, he also decided to give them a sign that they were, in fact, members of his people, of his covenant community. And the sign that he gave Israel was the sign of circumcision, that, that the male foreskin would be cut away on the eighth day, and anyone who was not circumcised would be known not to be an Israelite. Now, how you would know somebody's not circumcised, that's a whole other matter. But <laughs> anybody's not circumcised <laughs> would be known not to be Israel. But all of Israel, from the eighth day, would bear that sign. It was a sign uh, of this covenant, of this relationship between God and his people. Now Paul reaches back in the Old Testament, he grabs this symbol of circumcision, he brings it forward, he takes an old symbol and gives it new substance. Notice what he does there, he says, in him again. That's the key phrase through this text, in him, in him, with him, in him. In him now, in our union with Christ, notice, we have been circumcised too. But it's a circumcision, praise God, made without hands. 
It is spiritual. It is deeper than the old circumcision. It's not about foreskin. It's about the heart. So Paul, if you would like to look there, writes in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, these words. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. In other words, that old practice of circumcision was pointing to something else. And he, and he tells us, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise, the one so circumcised, is not from man, but from God. Oh no, God had a different cutting off in mind. To cut off the dead skin of the heart, which, which made us dead to God in sin. The old sin nature wrapped itself around the heart like a, like a tough elephant's hide. And it was just the air was sucked out of that hide so that it, it clenched around the heart. And as if the skin was further dried so that it became hard and brittle. That's our heart in sin. Encased in a nature that's, that's old and corrupt and dead. But now Christ has come. And Christ has come with spiritual shears. And he has cut that elephant skins off the heart. And he's looked at our heart and said, this one is dead. And he's given us a new heart. And a new heart with God's law written on it. And, and a new heart that's, that's fit for worship of God. He has circumcised us in heart. He's circumcised us in spirit and soul. So that that old dead casing has been removed. Notice there, putting off the body of the flesh. The sinful nature and his desires. Christ is cut away. Not finally, but decisively. Oh, there are times where we discover fleshly desire, but, but we notice that part of our heart which is beating, those valves which are opening and closing and letting the, the lifeblood of Christ to flow, they seem to overpower the dead sections of our heart. Christ has cut off the old man. Studded spiritually. We are alive. Footprint number four. Christ is not only circumcised us, but he has also baptized us. Notice in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Like circumcision... Baptized, baptism is more than getting dunked in water. Baptism is this powerful symbol of spiritual realities. Well, what realities? What does the verse say? We were, number one, buried with him. The death of Jesus on the cross was also the death of those who believe in him. We died with him because through faith our lives, remember, have been joined together with his and not only do we die with him as he dies our death for our sins on the cross, but notice now we also, verse 12, are raised with him through faith in the powerful work of God who raised him from the dead. Because we've been joined together with him in his death through faith, we're also raised together with him through that same faith, that same power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul tells us in Ephesians, is at work in us who believe. We too have been raised to newness of life with Christ by God's bap 
by God's power. And all of this is symbolized in baptism. It is our baptism that pictures our spiritual burial with Christ in a watery grave and raises us from that grave with Christ in the glory and the power of the resurrection. And this is why baptism is no light thing. It's no small thing. It is like all symbols pointing to more powerful realities than the symbols themselves. I've got a little wedding ring that I've worn now for 24 years. It's a symbol of my marriage to Christy, of our bond, our union, our love with one another. A few years ago, I saved a few, few dollars as much as I could and bought her a wedding ring. Not, not that first one I paid $300 for, which, you know, <laughs> you had to look at it real hard. There, diamond in there. I don't know if there was diamond in there. You sure that's a diamond? That's a diamond nail, ain't it? A, you know. Tried to buy a real diamond. A symbol of my love. A symbol of my empty bank account. <laughs> and she likes the ring. I hope she never fights to keep the ring. If ever she's outside and someone holds her at gunpoint and says, give me your jewelry, give me your ring, she doesn't need to be brave in that moment. She doesn't need to fight for her love in that moment. She needs to take off the ring and give it to whoever wants it. The ring is the symbol of something greater. In that moment, my love for her is not threatened. Her love for me is not threatened. The covenant commitments that we have made before God are not threatened. The ring is just a ring. It's metal. It's diamond. It'll, it will fade in the coming of Christ. Stronger than that is her I do to me and my I do to her. That can't be taken at gunpoint. That can't be taken. So it is with baptism. We participate in this symbol, this ritual of burial and resurrection with Christ. And if we lived in the Middle East where, where Muslim rulers would, would, would lock us up and kill us or, or torture us for baptism, if we had no water around anywhere whatsoever, it would not diminish that Christ is ours and we are Christ. Amen. It's a powerful picture of our being united with him and he with us. And this is why as a church, we want to be careful with the baptismal waters. Because we recognize that in baptism, that person being baptized is saying some things, but also as a church who administers baptism, we are saying some things. The person being baptized is saying, I am Christ and he is mine. And we're saying, we believe you. And so in our practice here, we want to be careful that people understand the gospel, number one. And that they can give a, a credible testimony of having believed the gospel and, and some evidence of that belief in their, in their own lives. And that they understand what baptism itself means. It means death to the world and death to self in order to live to Christ. Amen. And so when we think about our statement of faith, you'll see it printed there in your bulletin. That, that first paragraph there just about sums it up. Look there with me. I don't remember what page it is. Page 8. So you see in that second section there, you got those four paragraphs there, that first numbered paragraph. This is what we believe about baptism. And so let's confess this together as we read it together. 
Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ. It is intended to be, to the person baptized, a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, and of his being engrafted into Christ, and of the remission of sins. It also indicates that the baptized person has given himself up to God through Jesus Christ so that he may live and conduct himself in newness of life. Isn't that beautiful? That's Colossians 2. And look who should be baptized in the second paragraph. Let's read that together. The only persons who can rightly submit themselves to this ordinance are those who actually profess repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, being willing to yield obedience to him. Amen. And so those, those are the persons we want to see baptized. And church family, do pray for in a couple of weeks we'll have our first baptism service. Amen, indeed. Amen, indeed. Amen. Pray for those saints who are going to be baptized and recall your own baptism and recall this meaning of the baptism that we have been united through Christ in his death and resurrection. Our sins have been buried and washed away and we have been raised to live a new life for him. Baptism is this wedding ring of the Christian experience. Resist captivity because of Christ, number three, until we win. Until we win. Keep in mind, beloved, we are not fighting for freedom. We're fighting from freedom. Christians are not freedom fighters in the sense that we normally think of it, trying to wrestle their freedom from someone else. But notice the posture of the text. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You're already free. You're standing in freedom and you're protecting that ground which is freedom. So we, we've already won the victory and we know this again because of the past tense nature of verses 13 and 15. Thir 13 and 15. Look there with me. Colossians 2, 13 and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's all of us. We were dead in sins. Uncircumcised flesh. Notice what God did. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Oh, my word. Can we unpack this for a few minutes? Can we consider what's being said here? There's certain dominoes, five of them, that have fallen in these three verses. We see the last one given to us first in verse 13. What has God done? We were, all of us, dead in trespasses. That's another word for sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That is, our sin nature was, was running away with us. We were, we were dead to God. We were separated from God, and we were deserving of God's holy judgment. That was our condition before Christ. But if now we are Christians, that means God has acted decisively in our lives. And notice what he has done. The, the ultimate thing he's done here, verse 13, is God made us alive together with Christ. You realize that when we go out from here and we see people who are not yet Christians made in God's image, they are nevertheless dead men walking. 
They are not alive with God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And if they die in their sins, then they will forever be in their sins, suffering God's judgment. When we see such people like that, man, our hearts have to break, beloved. Our hearts have to weep. Because such persons, unless they're rescued via Christ, they're going to meet God as judge. And his judgment will be true. It will be perfect. It will be accurate. It will be incontrovertible. There will be no defense attorney who can make any argument to justify the sinner. He will be condemned. And he or she will know that they deserve that condemnation and hell will be their reward. We see dead men walking, we must weep. For unless their lives are changed, their future is horrible. And Paul says to us, though, Christian, that's not your worry, that's not your fear, because God has taken you and made you alive together with Christ. Now notice now, how did God do that? What was necessary for God to to make us alive? Well, the the next domino is also there in verse 13, the one that falls over onto the first one. He forgave us all our trespasses. Good God Almighty. Forgiving us all our trespasses. All is a glorious word. Sins past, sins present, sins future. 2,000 years ago, Christ saw them and God saw them and God in his son forgave us. He, he blotted out our sins, one translation says. He, he, he covered them. He, he, he forgave them. He, he removed them as far as the east is from the west. And he buried them in an ocean of forgetfulness and forgiveness. <laughs> Christian, you know, our, our sins rightly trouble us. They grieve us. And that itself is an indication that we have been made alive to God. Because there was a time where our sins didn't bother us at all. That was the agenda. Huh? Come on, we ain't so saved that we don't remember our sinful past, right? That was the agenda, the plan. And God saw it. And God knew it, and God was angry, and God would have been right to judge us, but God did something amazing. He forgave us all our trespasses, great and small, seen and unseen, known and unknown, the sins of omission and commission, the sins of our fallenness, the sins of our intention, all of our sins and all the sins that go into sin, God has forgiven. So complete, so thorough. Now, you know, Christian, that our sin can only trouble us so much if we remember the gospel. It should only trouble us enough to remember the gospel. It shouldn't trouble us so much that we feel insecure in God's love. Our sin should not trouble us so much that we feel like we might lose God's love. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Our, our sins can trouble us only enough if we're in our right mind to make us flee back to Christ and the cross and to remember there that God forgave us for our sins. Oh, you've got to be a sinner to appreciate that, <laughs> to know that. That's a big domino. God made us alive together, having forgiven us our trespasses. Well, how can he forgive us our trespasses? Next, the next domino in verse 13, by canceling the record of debt. That's what our sins were before Christ. 
a long record of debt, a long record of error and transgression and rebellion, a long record, a perfect record kept by God of all the ways that we have sabotaged his glory and departed from his way and, and sought our own way. Oh, God, this is why the psalmist says if, if God should count our sins against us, who could stand? I've long lost track of the sins I've committed. If I sat down to articulate the list of sins, I couldn't begin to come close to all the sin that, that I have committed. I was a fornicator and a thief. I was a liar. I, I was a brawler. I was proud and arrogant and unkind and impatient. When I think of my sins, and I can articulate for you in each of those categories particular instances of sin, and when I could think of how I had no regard for God in any of it, the record of my sins, who can number them? What about you? Can you number your sins, Christian? And this text tells us he's canceled them. He's not only forgiven them, but he's enabled to forgive them because he's canceled the record. <laughs> we don't owe that bill anymore. That, that debt is not mounted anymore. Stamped on that debt in the red ink of Christ's blood is paid in full. Canceled. We bear them no more. Bear them no more. And how did he do that? Verse 14. <laughs> By nailing it to the cross. Beloved, a nail has never been more beautiful. That nail is driven right through his hands and right through our sins. It is nailed to the cross. And this is why the hymn writer breaks out, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, because he bears it no more. It's nailed to the cross. That's the domino. That's the disciples' blow. And, and from that, all the other things follow. The, 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 the cancellation of debt, the, the forgiveness of all of our sins, and the being made alive in Christ. And there's at least one more thing here that we have done, which is part of our victory. Verse 15, notice what God did. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities here refer to fallen angels and demons. Notice back in verse 10, Paul refers to them by saying that Christ is head over them. Now in verse 15, he says that God has disarmed them and he has put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. Here, Paul is using uh, a metaphor, really, a word picture that's not so common in our day, but would have been common in the ancient world. When two kings would have battled on the battlefield and one king lost, one king was vanquished, very often the other king would take that king and any survivors and he would parade them through the streets of his city. 
He would parade them through the streets as his own kingdom subjects would jeer and mock and ridicule the, the conquered king. And, and in great shame, that king who once wore a crown and, and rode a fine beast and had people on his, uh, at his command, that king in shame would be drugged behind the other king's horses, mocked in open shame, a clear triumph. It reminds me of that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people lined the streets. And they took their palm branches and they laid them before him. And they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, if you know that passage in the Gospels, you know that in the Gospels, we don't see another king drugged behind him, put to shame. In fact, we know just a little bit later, the people would reject him. He would be sent to a cross. The problem with reading the Gospels without reading Colossians 2 is you don't see the whole parade for on the cross in his crucifixion and his resurrection. God is triumphing over his enemies in Christ. And it's here in Colossians 2 where you see the rest of the parade, Satan and his demons bound and drugged through the city streets and God's people rejoicing that their enemy has been conquered and Christ is king. And he's king for us, beloved. He rules over authorities and rulers for his church, for his people. The victory is won. The victory is ours. The victory is in Christ and his cross. And when we come to baptism, we're celebrating our victory. We're celebrating what Christ has done for us. And we shall one day see him face to face. And we shall celebrate with him at his table. And that celebration will never end. We believe in baptism because we believe in the gospel. And baptism is a picture of the gospel. Until Christ comes, we resist captivity because of who Christ is and what he's done. Knowing that we have a victory on the way. Let's pray together. O glorious God and King, we do praise you. For no mind has conceived of so great a salvation. No philosopher has dreamed that you should become incarnate. There's no wisdom in this world that would offer forgiveness freely to sinners and promise eternal life to those who believe. Nowhere, no place, is there anything like what we see in your holy book? You telling us of your love and proving your love for us in the cross of Christ and calling us to come and to believe in a crucified and resurrected Messiah who was God and, and was man who is coming again to gather his bride and in whose death is provision for the forgiveness of all our sins and trespasses because in his cross is nailed the record of all our sins. Oh God, we know that you have won your battle against all of our adversaries. And we know that we who stay in your gospel, trusting you, professing it in baptism and professing it in our daily lives, 
that we will be kept free for you until the very end. And Father, we are moved with the condition of those who are not yet Christians, who are not yet born again, who have not yet repented and believed. Oh God, we tremble to think of the the judgment that is to come. We pray for their escape. Oh Lord, but you must do it. You must give them a new heart. You You must change their minds and And you must cause them to see Christ and to love him and to trust him. Would you do that even now by your spirit? Would you grant, O Lord, would you grant eternal life? Would you grant repentance and faith? Would you grant someone to know even now what it is to have all their sins forgiven and the record burned? draw them to you with your love I pray don't let them leave this day without trusting in Christ do this for your glory and for their joy and for the expanding praise of your people in Jesus name Amen